This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So thank you and uh, welcome to today's talk entitled Religious Identity in a Pluralistic Age, which is a topic of clear relevance to a Catholic university like Villanova. My name is Bernard Prusak and I'm a member of the Center for Liberal Education. Here at Villanova, we're the people who bring you students ACS. I thank the Center, the Department of Theology and Religious Studies, the Office of Mission and Ministry, and the learning communities for helping to make this event possible. We also have to thank the Commonwealth Speakers Program, which is underwritten by a generous gift from James H. Duffy. Our speaker today is Paul Bauman, the editor of Commonwealth Magazine, which is an independent, lay-run Catholic magazine founded in 1924 in New York City. Roger Van Allen of the Theology Department, and also here with us, who is the author of two books on the history of Commonweal, has described it as perhaps the most significant lay enterprise and achievement in the history of American Catholicism. There are a number of copies of the magazine just outside the room, so as you leave, please take a look, and also consider subscribing to the magazine, which is really one of the best and most substantive magazines around. I'll leave it to Paul to tell you more about the magazine. It's a pleasure for me to introduce him, as he's a friend, a former boss. I worked at Commonwealth for a year, about 15 years ago already. And he's also my editor several times per year when he has me write for the magazine. Paul has been with Commonwealth since 1990, and has been his editor since 2003. He's a graduate of Wesleyan College and Yale Divinity School, and a former newspaper man, and as I recall, for a spell teacher, too. He's widely published and has become a recognized authority on Catholicism in the United States today. So, please join me in welcoming him and, and thanking him as well for visiting us. Thank you, Bernard. Um, uh, let me begin um, uh, by thanking uh, Villanova and especially Bernard for this kind invitation to speak. Uh, as Bernard mentioned, uh, we've known each other, I guess, almost 14 or 15 years now, which seems uh, remarkable. Uh, not long after graduating from college and after a junket to Spain, paid for by the Watson Fellowship Program, Bernard landed at Commonwealth as a poorly paid, very poorly paid editorial intern. He stayed, surviving on table scraps and living in an abandoned building, and I'm not kidding, uh, for a year before going off to graduate school. I trust many of you are familiar with the old cautionary tale about what goes on in a sausage factory. No matter how much you love sausages, you really don't want to know, let alone see how they are made. Well, that is also true of magazines. While not as gruesome as sausage making, Putting out a magazine every two weeks is just as messy. It is not a pretty sight. I'm happy to report, however, that Bernard saw how a magazine was made and lived to tell the tale. Still, like all interns, he has sworn to secrecy when it comes to the very glorious parts of that tale. Religious identity in a pluralistic age. And the subtitle is Liberal, Conservative, or Just Catholic. Well, as that title suggests, there are a number of topics I'd like to touch on this afternoon. Politics for one, 
how Catholics engage each other as well as people of other faiths for another, how Catholics balance the moral teachings of the church with the responsibilities as citizens for yet another, and finally, how Catholics might think about our religious identity in a pluralistic age <coughs> in an increasingly, increasingly secular world. These questions are, as the cliche goes, enough for a book or several books. My approach this afternoon will be more impressionistic. Or, as my teenage daughter likes to say, who heard me rehearsing this speech, it will be long and it will be tedious. <laughs> By impressionistic, basically what I mean is I'm going to tell three stories, stories that I hope will illustrate my overriding point. That point, to borrow a phrase from the late Cardinal Bernadine, and I will paraphrase, is that we are all in this together. And by we, I mean Catholics of every philosophical or ideological inclination, other believers, as well as unbelievers, Philly fans and Mets fans. I'm not going to develop a rigorous thesis. Nothing I say will be very original. I'm following the footsteps of writers and scholars such as Peter Steinfels, John Greeley, Charles Morris, and many others. I should also warn you that public speaking, as you are doubtless already aware, is something I've only recently been called upon to do. And that fact reminds me of a story about a lecturer who noticed that the applause was rather tepid at the conclusion of his talk. He sat down, somewhat disheartened, and said to the man sitting next to him, it was not that bad, was it? The man replied, don't worry about it. I don't blame you. I blame the people who invited you to speak. <laughs> On that note, let me further warn you that I'm not a theologian or a philosopher, or even the most, that most lucrative of vocations, a papal biographer. <laughs> Nor, I hasten to add, do I think of myself as an evangelist or the steward of a ministry. I'm an editor and a journalist. I was trained as an editorial writer at a newspaper, and as a journalist, the term evangelist makes me a little uneasy. I've, been, I've recently been reading about the emergence of what some scholars call evangelical Catholicism. The term evangelical Catholic describes younger Catholics who've grown up after the demise of the largely urban and ethnically defined Catholic subculture. These young Catholics <coughs> have <coughs> seized on more traditional pre-Vatican II forms of piety and what some call an exaggerated regard for the papacy in an effort to forge a distinct Catholic identity. In short, these young people are trying to find a way to be Catholic in an America where religious identity is often an individual rather than a communal project. I appreciate the need for such identity formation up to a point, but I'm temperamentally drawn to the more diffident, institutional-centered tidy of my parents' generation. I'm more comfortable talking about religion and spirituality, and my instinct is to hope that I'm in communion with the church rather than to talk about the ups and downs of my personal relationship with Jesus. At Commonwealth, one of my jobs is to try to turn the turgid, esoteric, <coughs> jargon-ridden prose of academics and theologians into something accessible to the general reader. I am, of course, talking about the writing of academics from Notre Dame and Boston College, <laughs> not Villanova. I like my work. I think it's important. I even like academics and theologians. Theological writing is interesting in its own right, but I also believe that in our current cultural, social, and political situation, that our current cultural, social, and political situation demands analysis 
and remedies that are not merely political or economic, but moral and even religious. That's why I think a magazine like Commonweal is important. Commonweal is a place where the often unappreciated resources of the Catholic moral and intellectual tradition can engage the liberal democratic tradition in what I think is a mutually corrective and mutually supportive way. When the church succumbs to illiberal temptations of censorship or intolerance, <clears throat> we all should object and call the church back to its truer self. When the larger secular culture succumbs to the temptation of materialism, or when it resorts to violence in a morally unjustifiable way, we as Catholics must raise our voices calling liberal democracy back to its best self. Given the complex nature of our situation, I think it is inevitable that there will be multiple and diverse ways of being Catholic, and multiple and diverse ways that Catholics are present and engaged in civic life. Catholic values and Catholic teaching cannot be translated into any one political or ideological point of view, either within the church or outside. Former New York Times columnist and former Commonwealth editor Peter Steinfels puts it this way. If Catholics are going to have a presence in the public square, then we're going to have to expect them to disagree with one another. So there will be a Henry Hyde, and there will be a Mario Cuomo, and there will be an Antonine Scalia. These people are recognizably Catholic, and they are recognized as part of the Catholic presence in the public square. They may not want to say things, <clears throat> they may want to say things about the gospel and about Jesus, but we should accept that they will say them as more or less informed Catholic, well-informed Catholics, and not as authoritative teachers. Steinfeld's worries that room for this diverse public Catholic presence is shrinking. I share that worry. Certainly the demand made by some bishops in the 2008 presidential election that Catholics not vote for Senator Obama deepened those worries. The protest over the University of Notre Dame's invitation to President Obama to, uh, uh, over the fact that he was asked to deliver the commencement address raised similar concerns. The insistence recently by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops that Catholics could not support the health care bill raised even greater concerns. I might add uh, that it is also uh, a, sad, a sad fact um, that contributors to Commonwealth, like Peter Seinfeld uh, and Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a, a, very, uh, a very gifted scripture scholar, have been uh, denied. <coughs> people, have tried, people have asked them to speak in their parishes and at their universities, and bishops have refused to allow this to happen, uh, which I think is, uh, is, is a bad thing. Catholics. <coughs> must constantly negotiate the truth claims made by the church with the real political choices and limitations that we face. It's not easy. It never has been. One of my favorite stories about Catholic impatience with internal disagreement about how to negotiate those claims concerns an incident that occurred in 1961. At that time, a well-known Catholic dissenter published a stinging criticism of Pope John XXIII's widely praised encyclical, Moderating Gistra. The critic thought the encyclical was insufficiently alarmed about the threat of communism, and he called it a venture in triviality. He further compared it 
to the 1861 syllabus of errors, the widely discredited people encyclical that, the writer gloated, is now the source of embarrassed explanations. He even embraced the position that some might call cafeteria Catholicism, saying he much preferred the views of the American bishops to that of the Pope. The critically controlled, <coughs> excuse me, the clerically controlled Catholic press went on the attack. It is the duty of all Catholics to accept the teachings of the Pope with filial respect, official church spokesman wrote. The dissenters' writings seriously and consistently undercut positions that we judge central to our faith. Even if tempted to view things from an American perspective, Catholics must have no doubt whatsoever that they are Catholics first, last, and all the time. <laughs> um, wrote the editor, that, that, that statement was written by the editors of the Jesuit America, uh, magazine, America. This is the stuff from which, from which schisms sprout in an outraged Catholic communist complaint. If Catholics find a conflict between their views and the views expressed by the Pope, then for the health of their own souls, they should make up their mind and make it up quickly on which side their loyalty stands. A campaign to silence this critic of John, <coughs> Pope John XXIII followed, and it entailed a refusal to publish his work in Catholic journals and the demand that he not be allowed to speak at Catholic colleges and parishes. The writer who called the Pope's encyclical adventure in triviality was none other than the late William F. Buckley, Jr. Do students recognize that name? <laughs> Probably not, okay. Uh, William F. Buckley was uh, a devout and outspoken Catholic, founder of the conservative magazine, The National Review, and the intellectual godfather of the political movement that dramatically changed American politics and the American church over the past 50 years. As I think the story shows, it's not a bad thing for Catholics to disagree about how to interpret church teaching or to disagree with one another, even in public. That is one liberal value the church still needs to come more fully to terms with. Papal biographer and conservative polemicist George Weigel rejects that idea. He refers to the openness associated with liberal Catholicism, admittedly a very slippery term, as Catholic light, L-I-T-E. According to Weigel, Catholics who question the authority now vested in the papacy or church teaching on faith and morals, harbor a perverse desire to be born again as those most forsaken of God's creatures, liberal Protestants. Weigel likes to juxtapose Catholic light to so-called authentic, faithful, or orthodox Catholicism. This rhetorical sleight of hand is intended to paint those who are puzzled by the church's teaching on the ordination of women, contraception, for example, as inauthentic, unfaithful, or heretical. This polemical style strikes me as little more than veiled political sloganeering. Still, the religious critique Weigel and other conservatives make of the liberal excesses of American culture, as well as their worries about certain trends within the church, are not without merit. As I said earlier, I too believe that our cultural, political, <coughs> Uh, our cultural and political situation demands analysis and remedies that are not narrowly political or economic, but moral and religious. The late Nobel Prize-winning Polish poet, Czesław Milosz, made the same point more eloquently. 
For me, the religious dimension is extremely important, he wrote. I feel that everything depends on whether people are pious or not pious. Reverence towards being, which can be formulated in strictly religious terms or more general terms, that is the basic value. Piety protects us against nihilism. It is my impression the Catholics, whether liberal, middle of the road, or conservative, agree with Maloch. The temptations to nihilism, both in our popular culture and our political life, is great. For all its virtues and benefits, secular liberalism can easily drift off course, especially when it threatens to marginalize or even suppress the natural human longing for the transcendent. There is an important debate going on in Catholic circles about how to resist that temptation and how to sustain and replenish the sources of reverence and piety to which Meloche referred. In that debate, some complain that Catholic liberals trim their faith to fit the culture instead of professing and living that, living that faith in a way that would radically alter our circumstances. It seems to me there is some truth to that charge. None of us is as virtuous or faithful as we should be. Freedom can be intoxicating. The gospel's demands can be daunting. Still, I think the Catholic light gambit is mostly caricature and not very helpful caricature at that. I do not think that there is any way to restore or recreate the kind of thick Catholic culture with its invincible moral confidence that defined Catholic life in this country for the better part of the last century. George Weigel claims that we need a harder, more shatterproof Catholicism. In his book, The Courage to be Catholic, written in response to the sexual abuse crisis, Weigel proposes an unapologetic, unambiguous, enthusiastic fidelity to the fullness of Catholic faith as the antidote to the toxic larger culture. Only a vibrant public moral culture based on the unchanging binding moral truth taught by the Catholic Church can preserve genuine freedom, he writes. For freedom, Weigel argues, is not a matter of doing what we like, but rather of having the right to do what we ought. It seems to me that Weigel is wrong. At least he is wrong about the nature of freedom in a democracy. I agree with the Catholic scholar Michael Walsh. The Second Vatican Council's declaration on religious liberty recognized that the primary task of the state is not the promotion of truth, but the pres preservation of freedom. As Catholics, we are committed to pluralism and tolerance to what the Jesuit theologian John Courtney Murray called the American Constitution's Articles of Peace before we are committed to any public triumph of Catholic truth or morals. Error now has rights. Today, when Catholics engage in the messy compromises of democratic politics on issues such as abortion, embryonic stem cell research, or same-sex marriage, it is important that we acknowledge that there can be more than one right answer. We have to live with that ambivalence. The fact that reasonable people disagree does not imply a denial of objective moral truth. What it does show, it seems to me, and I'm going to follow here in the, in the writings of the political philosopher Charles Lamar, is that in a pluralistic democracy, there can't be a systematic moral or metaphysical system 
that provides a way of settling all moral disputes that does not at the same time end up denying some of our deepest moral commitments. Among those commitments is respect for the rights and moral autonomy of others, especially those with whom we disagree. As Catholics, we are confronted again and again with situations in which our allegiance is torn between the obvious benefits of contemporary secular culture and the often countercultural truths of Catholicism. You cannot write as many anti-abortion editorials as I have and not become pretty alienated from the liberal consensus. On the other hand, you cannot write as many editorials about sexual abuse in the church or about the history of the church's anti-Semitism as I have without becoming pretty alienated from certain Catholic claims to authority and virtue. Just think about the controversies that have erupted in recent years over Holocaust-denying bishops or the incredible revelations concerning the founder of the Legionnaires of Christ. Who doesn't feel profound ambivalence towards both the culture and the church? On the whole, however, I do not think the tension between the church and the culture is a bad thing. Frankly, I think it is a good and necessary thing. Let me provide an example of what I mean. Recently, I was at an academic conference dealing with the question of how to hand on the Catholic faith and tradition to the next generation. Many of the participants were decidedly conservative and self-consciously orthodox. Some spoke in apocalyptic terms about the decadence of secular culture and politics. As one of the most articulate participants put it, the ambient public culture of the United States is profoundly pagan. The primary question is not how to correlate, harmonize, and accommodate church and culture, but how to resist. Another participant, a distinguished historian, argued that it was imperative for the church to reclaim its distinctive language and exclusionary boundaries. He urged that in passing on the faith, the church only appeal to what is peculiar to itself, draw only on our own resources. To speak the moral language of a larger culture is tantamount to capitulation. There is nothing wrong with the Catholic ghetto as long as, enough, as, long as it is an authentically Catholic ghetto. In response, Another theologian asked about the tradition's capacity for self-correction. If only Catholic resources are used, only Catholic voices carry weight, will the church be able to correct itself when it is wrong? This was evidently a rhetorical question, because the theologian then piously concluded that the tradition had, in fact, always possessed precisely those self-correcting resources. <clears throat> I think these views this tendency to draw a sharp juxtaposition between the church and the larger world are widely shared among certain bishops and are especially influential in Rome. And I think that is unfortunate. Several bishops were in attendance at this academic conference. And one of them objected to this line of thinking. Remarkably, he said, remarkably, he said he didn't think the tradition possessed the internal resources necessary to correct itself. The sexual abuse crisis, he noted, was the obvious example of why the church needed the larger culture. Without the intervention of those outside the church, the abuse crisis would never have been revealed or addressed. 
There is much we can learn from the modern world, especially about moral accountability and respect for others, the bishop concluded. <coughs> we must resist the idea that the church is self-sufficient, that the church always knows best. Needless to say, I have rarely been so heartened by the presence of a bishop. I suppose some might label his remarks a dangerous accommodation to a pagan culture, perhaps even Catholic light. But he sounded awfully orthodox to me. As I understand it, Catholic doctrine recognizes that God is at work in the world and not just in the church. He might even be at work among liberals. Weigel and his fellow neoconservatives neo imagine that, a few, that the future belongs to a new generation of evangelical Catholics who hunger for the discipline and clarity of what he calls the high adventure of fidelity to Catholic truth. Fidelity, fidelity, fidelity is the mantra. For authentic Catholic reform to take place, Weigel darkly warned, it is no longer permitted for any Catholic to be mediocre. I think there is something a little un-Catholic about that sentiment. A demand for such purity, the Catholic tradition shows, is the source of all heresies. What a church that doesn't allow for mediocrity, mediocrity would look like is hard to imagine, especially for a Mets fan like myself, <laughs> or, from any, or for anyone who comes from a large family, or anyone who has to listen to Catholics sing or preach. Such exhortations are bullying. Listening to these bracing calls for the unambiguous and the unapologetic, I am reminded of a lovely line from the poet W.H. Auden, a commonwealth contributor. Love, or truth in any serious sense, like orthodoxy, is a reticence, Auden wrote. It seems to me that what Weigel's critique misses is that the culture wars do not just divide American society, do not just divide red and blue America, or so-called conservatives from so-called liberals. They divide our own hearts and minds. Those of us who are drawn, either passionately or fitfully, to Catholicism face a complex situation, and we have to find our way day by day and issue by issue. I think war, even culture war, should be a last resort. America, I would argue, is not enemy terrain for the gospel, not just the secular enlightenment understanding of history and morality, but the biblical understanding of history and morality finds a profound echo here in the whole industry and basic decency of the American people. Let me say again that as individuals, we need to recognize how deeply implicated we are both in the culture's virtues and errors. Even when we try to return to traditional Catholic practices and convictions, we inevitably rely on modern moral understandings to do so. I can't think of a better example of this than how advocates of natural family planning now speak of NFP as the high road to sexual fulfillment. The traditional natural law arguments and appeals to authority that were long used to condemn the use of contraception never bothered with that idea. The importance of sexual fulfillment within marriage is something Catholicism has learned, grudgingly, from the larger culture. Which brings me to my third story, one that I hope will help give some historical perspective on the danger of thinking that we are faced with a stark choice between 
an irredeemably corrupt culture or a church that has all the answers. I think the story might be particularly relevant given that what I consider to be the hostile response of many bishops to Barack Obama's election, especially as it touches on the abortion question. Let me be clear. The bishops have been courageous in their opposition to abortion and right to insist that current abortion law and practice are unacceptable. At the same time, the bishops' rhetoric makes political compromise less likely, and political compromise is the only way in which abortion practice in this country is going to change. Rhetoric matters, as I think my third story shows. The story is about the founder of Common Women, a man named Michael Williams. This is a story, I should add, that has been expertly told by Villanova's own Roger Van Allen in his history of Common Women. Williams was born in 1877 and died in 1950. He founded Commonweal in 1924 and remained its editor until 1938. He tells his fascinating life story in his spiritual biography, The Book of the High Romance, which was published in 1918. <coughs> Despite a convoluted prose style, he paints vivid scenes of his boyhood in Nova Scotia, his life as a recovering tuberculosis patient in North Carolina, his experiences during the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, he was the city editor of the San Francisco Examiner at the time, and his, and his encounters with fellow utopian thinker Upton Sinclair. Like many aspiring artists of the time, he dabbled in socialism and spiritualism. A self-described bohemian, Williams traveled widely, achieving some literary success. The High Romance is a story of his religious conversion. Baptized a Catholic, he abandoned his faith at 14. At 33, he returned to the church. Not long after, he went to work for the bishop's National Catholic War Council, a precursor of the US Conference of Catholic Bishops. By 1924, Williams had helped found Commonwealth as an answer to the secular magazines like the New Republic and the Nation, which Williams claimed advanced an intellectual agenda that was the opposite and nullification of Catholicism. Williams tells of his passion for one <clears throat> failed alternative faith after another. Battles with TB and alcohol punctuate this tale of a writer who aspired to be the voice of an age. And what a tumultuous, bewildering age it must have been. Born into the era of the horse and buggy, he lived long enough to see the advent of jet travel. As a newsman covering the US military incursion into Mexico in 1914, he witnessed what he claimed was the first bomb dropped <coughs> from a plane on non-combatants. He lived long enough to read about the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He was hardly the only person of his displaced generation to wonder what the world was coming to. Nor was he the only literary type to embrace Catholicism's certainties as the answer to the modern world's assault on inherited authority and the human longing for God. Williams came to believe that the chief culprit responsible for the moral anarchy he saw around him was a new paganism, a new paganism evident in the anti-religious biases of fashionable intellectuals and politically in the explicitly godless state. 
Against this, only Catholicism can hope to prevail, he wrote. Only the Catholic Church can save mankind from the forces of anarchy. Religion must be recognized as the only force that can keep the world safe and endurable, he wrote. But safe from what? Here, Williams' answers sound remarkably familiar. Religion, Williams thought, keeps us safe from the pernicious influence of modern art and literature and the unfettered freedom they advocate. Religion keeps us safe from the commercial exploitation of sex and from the sexual immorality manifest in the prevalence of divorce and the growing popularity of fanciful theories about sexual emancipation. Williams' words about the new paganism are strikingly familiar. He was writing in 1918, yet his denunciations sound like Jeremiah's of some Catholics today who warn of the incompatibility between Catholicism and liberal democracy, between Catholicism and a decadent culture of death. By the late 1930s, the Depression was gripping America and war was imminent in Europe. Williams came to believe that the cultural and religious crisis had reached a turning point, especially in Spain. In the bloody Spanish Civil War, the fascist leader, General Francisco Franco, was backed by the church, fighting against communist and democratic forces. Williams felt it necessary to take Franco and the church's side. He was not alone. At the time, every authoritative American Catholic institution was pro-Franco. I think Michael Williams embraced Franco because he came to believe the Catholic truth and the secular state were irreconcilable. His need to believe that there was only one right answer to our moral and political questions led him to conclude that General Franco's allegiance to Catholic culture should trump concerns over Franco's murderous rule. The only thing, the one thing, which can prevent the overthrow of all moral conventions, habits, customs, and beliefs, Williams wrote, is the influence of the Catholic Church. That's a lot to ask of any church led by more mortal and fallible men. In contrast to Williams, other Commonwealth editors refused to back Franco. As a result, Williams was forced to resign as editor. For not backing Franco, Commonwealth was roundly condemned in the Catholic press and lost one quarter of its subscribers. Let me be clear, I'm not suggesting that Williams was some sort of crypto-fascist. He wasn't. As the title of his book indicates, he was a passionate romantic, someone who felt keenly the disappearance of a more personal world under the pressure of an industrializing and rationalizing modernity. I am arguing, however, that he made the all too common mistake of thinking that Catholic truth is the answer to every political problem. Like the Catholic, like the Catholic Church across Europe at that time, Williams too easily despaired of liberal democracy. The other editors of Commonwealth who opposed Franco were not in favor of socialism or communism. They certainly were not apologists for the murderous anti-clerical violence of Franco's opponents. They simply refused to accept the idea that Catholics had to choose either fascism or communism, had to choose either Catholic truth or democracy. They recognized that liberalism 
had something to teach the church, and that the church still had much to teach the modern world. Today, we live in a culture whose neo-pagan excesses surely have Michael Williams spinning in his grave. Many voices, both clerical and theological, are again telling us that only Catholicism, or only Christianity, or only faith can safeguard human dignity and freedom. But God does not work only through the church, and we should resist the idea that only an unambiguous allegiance to the church is the answer to our moral and social problems. The paradigm that juxtaposes the church and the culture, the culture of life and the so-called culture of death, seems to me is too reductive, is too easily manipulated for dubious ends. Catholics should resist arguments that seek to abolish the ambivalence we rightly feel about both the culture and the church. <coughs> I don't want to be misunderstood. In its sacramental vision, its rejection of an exaggerated and destructive individualism, its sense that there is a place for everyone regardless of any utilitarian capitalism. And most important, because of the story it tells about the meaning and destiny of human life, Catholicism is democracy's ally and modernity's unappreciated partner. But Catholics, formed by this culture, <clears throat> will not listen to, let alone be transformed by the gospel, if the church does not find a way to acknowledge their deepest moral impulses. Those impulses include a generous respect for the opinions of others, an understanding of the contested nature of moral truth, and an abiding devotion to both freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. So let me end by simply saying once again that I think it is the tension between Catholicism's demands and the modern world's unprecedented freedoms that will keep both the church and the culture humane. Thank you for your patience. Uh, older bishops, 
are more uh, sympathetic to Commonwealth's concerns in the Midwest. But it's not, it's never black and white. Uh, I've got a lot of students here, so we've been walking quite a while. <laughs> Is Conrail the leading Catholic magazine? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for that talk. <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, there, there, are, there are a handful of Catholic magazines. I mean, there's uh, the Jesuit magazine, America. There's U.S. Catholic, and then uh, uh, there's National Catholic Reporter. And there's our Sunday visitor and, and much bigger uh, operations. And then there are magazines, more conservative uh, uh, magazines, like a magazine called First Things, which has a lot of Catholic writers in it, but refers to itself as an ecumenical. Because it's founding editor, who founded the magazine, who was a Lutheran, who became a Catholic. Does the Uh, uh, we're, we're pretty separate entities. For, I mean, for example, uh, the Jesuits who run America, um, of course, uh, how, uh, how put this? Um, their, their, their number of things that they can discuss in their pages is a bit more limited than the number of things that we can discuss because they, they have to be very staff and responsible for their religious security. Uh, but we're an independent magazine, so we're not, we're not funded by the church. We have no direct administrative or connection to the church. It's always been edited by lay Catholics. It's, uh, uh, I mean, that was uh, it was it was felt in the 1920s when it was created that the uh, Catholics in America were sort of coming into their own. They needed a, a strong, independent voice uh, to express uh, the Catholic sensibility, much more than uh, it wasn't it wasn't intended to be. Uh, an evangelical or an apologetic to do any process. Yes? Do you ever like, find it challenging, I guess, like within your magazine, because it's like not like the other Catholic magazines where like they have to follow the church's views, like you guys are like kind of in a gray area, like within the magazine agreeing on what you're going to publish, like everyone has different opinions? Um, I, sometimes, but I, I think... Uh, we really do, and you know, readers are the best judge of this, but I mean, we really do feel that Commonwealth is a place where people who don't necessarily agree can engage one another uh, in, a, in a civil uh, discussion. So uh, we don't, I mean, I, many people, and there's some truth to this, think of us as a liberal magazine, um, but we, um, uh, we we uh, we fantasize that we are open to all views as long as they are expressed in a in a in a cogent and a reasonable way. Yeah. Do you think the church is going to have to make concessions on some of these controversial topics, like exceptions to stay related to the American public as they grow more individualistic, more pluralistic? Uh. Uh, what specific issue are you talking about? And of course, we wouldn't call it concession. We'd call it a development. But, uh, well, either way, any, any of the issues, like recently the Pope published something on uh, contraception, so issues like that where they've taken a hard stance and the American public has sort of uh, distanced 
from the church in that regard? Um, I really hate answering questions like this. No, um, uh, I don't think uh, I don't think there's going to be any dramatic change in, in the foreseeable future on uh, on any of any of those questions. Those are those are very very difficult uh, questions, uh, uh, and um, I don't see official church teaching changing uh, in, in any in any dramatic way. When the, I mean even uh, I don't, uh, you know, the Pope's recent comments uh, about, uh, about the use of condoms uh, is, is also, a, it's a fairly uh, complicated thing that he said. It wasn't a simple, you know, he didn't announce any dramatic change in Catholic teaching there. He was, he was, he was opening up the discussion about something that's always been there in some, in some sense. Yes? Do I think it will survive without changing dramatically? Um, yes. Uh, uh, it, it, it seems to be a remarkably resilient uh, institution. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that its, you know, its core mission uh, is, uh, is, is sacramental and, and religious. Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, that remains what draws people to it, uh, regardless of their disagreements uh, about, uh, about many of the uh, many contemporary questions that all of us can imagine. Yes? Um, you spoke about sort of like the fusion between like liberal democracy and Catholicism, right? Respecting each other. Uh, do you not think that in some areas it's almost like Catholicism uh, and liberal democracy are competing for followers? There are some areas where. I do think there are some issues in, in, in which the church uh, will remain um, a, uh, uh, and should remain uh, in opposition, in irritant, uh, offering an alternative. Uh, but I, I think, I think where where I wouldn't go would be to say that because there are issues like that, then you cross over into a into a whole scale denunciation of liberal democracy. Um, uh, I think. In fact, as you know, as the as I alluded to in the, in the, in the piece, I do think that, um, in some sense, the, the, the church should support liberal democracy. <laughs> it's a it's a good thing. It is it is uh, it is rooted, I would argue, in basic Christian values about the uh, you know the uh, absolute um, value of individual life, uh, and that it should it works to bring about. To perfect liberal democracy, uh, and I, I, I personally am not at, at a point where I'm willing to write off liberal democracy. And I think our recent elections and the, the tenor and the uh, extreme rhetoric of our recent elections suggest that we really, we really should do what we can to support liberal democracy, not not run it down. I think it's uh, it's, it's perhaps a more precarious um, enterprise than we think. Yes? Where in the church are your allies? 
was a uh, was a real threat to people's faith. Uh, that that was a remarkable that, that accomplished many remarkable things, but began to break down essentially. I would say uh, during uh, during World War II, uh, when the nation was entirely mobilized, Catholics and Jews and Protestants all went into the service together. They mingled. They came out. Uh, there was a GI Bill. They went. Uh, Catholics uh, started going to uh, universities and colleges in really extraordinary numbers. They <laughs> moved out of the cities, out of the cities where they were, uh, to a large extent, uh, uh, lived in ethnic communities, out in suburbs where they also mixed with other people, and they assimilated. That's that. So the, so the Catholic subculture or ghetto disappeared. With it, some would argue. Uh, much of the Catholic, what was uniquely Catholic, also disappeared. And so the, the person I was referring to in the paper was saying, we need to reconstruct something like that. He, he wasn't very explicit. Something like that, so that, uh, so that, that Catholics can um, uh, come to better know their, their tradition, and, and they'll have the antibodies to resist the larger, the, the larger culture, the, the, the acids and modernity. Uh, second? Okay. There's one more question. Sorry, last one. Yes, sir. Okay, well, <clears throat> this is just, you know, kind of from a geographical standpoint. Um, you know, for a while, you know, Catholic, the Catholic Church has been moving around uh, throughout history. Um, right now, uh, Europe especially is becoming extremely, extremely secular. Uh, uh, Catholics and uh, religion is just... Uh, really not as, as popular as it used to be. And I had a, I have a good friend uh, from Europe who says, you know, going to church is kind of something that you know, only the old folks do. Um, and now, really, the center, uh, a lot of Catholics are, are located in South America. So how do you think the movement of the Catholic people is going to affect the, uh, you know, I guess, I guess the, the potence or the, uh, the prominence of, of the Catholic church in society, where they're going to go next? Mm -hmm. Um, I think historically there have been a lot of a, a lot of dramatic ups and downs uh, uh, when it comes to Catholicism, even in Europe, uh, when it comes to uh, church attendance and all the rest of it. Um, so I don't think that it's been one. Uh, it, it, it wasn't one straight climb, and then suddenly people jumping off the jumping off the bandwagon. It does seem uh, uh, much stronger in developing countries, and there are probably a lot of good sociological reasons for that. Um, I guess what I would say to that is that it, it, is, it was a remarkable achievement what the Catholic Church did in, in bringing generations after generations of immigrants into American life, educating them, catechizing them, enabling them to, uh, to, to, to live uh, better lives. It was a remarkable achievement. And it took real leadership, real imagination, real determination. Uh, and it seems to me that that is precisely what the church needs now in order to address this new situation that Catholics find themselves in, in a more secular, in a more pluralistic world. We need the same kind of innovation and imagination and leadership that they had then. I don't know where that is at the moment, to tell you the truth, but I think you have to believe that if, uh, if what, the, what the church teaches is true, that it can be uh, enculturated in a lot of different societies, a lot of different ways of life, including this one.
This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.